And good evening, good afternoon, good morning, I guess, in some parts of the world. Hey, Dave, how you doing? All right. How are you? Doing good. I'm pretty good. It's November 11th. My name's Jamie, Jamie Banjo Company, and uh, with me is my gorgeous, talented, expert co-host, Mr. David Banjowski. Wow. wow. It's, about as, it's about as nice as I've ever been to you, I'm aware, but... Uh, Thank you, as always. Um, also, thank you, uh, everybody who joined us last week. That was a ton of fun. Um, for those of you that missed it, we, we did a, an Ask Us Anything session just with me, Jamie Deering, and Chad Kapodik. Uh We're going to do those again because we didn't even come close to answering all of your amazing questions. So thank you, everybody, who tuned in for that. And uh, we also solved that pesky technical issue at the end there. So future, <laughs> future uh, events will be um, far, far more straightforward. Um, right. Let's get to it, Dave. What do you say? Yeah, definitely. All right. Very good. So this week, uh, as you already know, we're very excited to feature bluegrass banjoist Mike Mumford. Mike is a past IBMA Player of the Year winner and currently plays with a Grammy-nominated band Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen. Besides being one of the top banjoists on the scene today, as many of you will know, Mike is also a very highly rated banjo setup technician. So we've got lots to talk about today. Let's bring him in, Jonathan. It's Mr. Mike Mumford, everybody. And we think he's there. He's not. He is whirring away. That's okay. He's coming back He'll in. He'll be right back. There he is. There, there he is. is. Hey, Mike. There we are. How are you? I can hear you now. Awesome. There we go. Absolutely. So we're going to get things kick-started. Would you mind uh, playing us a little little tune off the top here? And then, I'd like uh, to. I'm going to warm up with a little quick little bit of some Earl Scruggs, because uh, I was just listening the other day to an old... Um, uh, something from the 50s, early 50s, live radio broadcast, and this is one of my favorite tunes to warm up on, and then I'm going to play you a tune. A little bit of awesome. uh, Get In Line, Brother. Thank you. 
job, Mike. That was fantastic. Katie Hill. Yeah. Lots of melodic playing right there. That is a lot of melodic playing. Yeah, some uh, sort of mid-position melodic and uh, sort of down-the-neck melodic. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of guitar technique, a little bit down in this zone here, too. Okay, yeah. I remember I remember learning the uh, Bill Keith version of, of Katie Hill out of a book years ago. Right, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Bobby Thompson, too, I think, had a, a recording of that back in the yes. area code 615 days. Yeah. Right, right. We probably learned out well, the same book, that melodic banjo book from uh, uh, yep, Tristan. Yep, 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 that's it. Right? It, that's the one. I still have yeah. that little, like, square 45 that came in that uh, in that book, that, you know, the pull-out 45. Um, yeah. Man, I should have trimmed that square back. It was a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, thanks for, thanks for doing this. Um, it's great to, great to have you to. on the show. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be part of it. Um. Tell us, tell us for people that aren't familiar with your background. You know, where'd you, how'd you get started with the banjo? Where'd you grow up when you when you first picked up the banjo? Uh, from Baltimore, Maryland. Grew up born and raised, well, born actually in St. Louis, raised in Baltimore. When I was in my mid-teens, about 15, is when I first became aware of bluegrass. Uh, I'd probably heard it on the radio from time to time, not knowing what it was, just assuming it was country music or some kind. But uh, a neighborhood friend of mine up the street had just gotten a banjo. And um, we didn't really have a neighborhood full of musicians. I mean, people would have pianos and things like that in the house, mostly for decoration, it seems like. But he had a banjo, and he showed it to me one day, and he started playing a little bit of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And I, and I didn't know the title of the tune, but I'd heard that tune on the radio or maybe at a ball game or something like that. And I always liked it, but didn't know what it was or how to seek it out. But here's a guy right in the neighborhood playing a little bit of it. And he was just learning, too, but he could, he could actually play that. And I said, what is that? You've got to show me what, you know, who is this? And he said, Earl Scruggs, the guy who did the Beverly Hillbillies theme, which I also liked and enjoyed as a kid, but never, never enough to really pursue it. But it, but it did catch my attention. It kind of fascinated me, just the, the sound of the instrument. But I didn't really go after it until I saw somebody right in front of me playing. And Foggy Mountain was the tune, and then he put on a record of Earl Scruggs live at Kansas State, and um, Earl Scruggs Review, and I wasn't really familiar with the band or anything like that, but the name Earl Scruggs was somewhat familiar, and he played the cut of Foggy Mountain Breakdown, and I was hooked right on the spot. I said, you've got to show me how to do this. Uh, just Even if I only learned this one tune, I just want to be able to do that. So it got me right between the ears. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, it's such a for for bluegrass players of a bluegrass banjo, especially players, um, of, you know, from when the time you were you're coming of age at that time, it, it's such right. a common common um, kind of story. So you know, where we've heard that you know the Earl Scruggs playing, it just it just uh, it just captivated you. What do you think it was in his playing that just that oh, that that comes across in that spoke to you and speaks to so many players like that. And you aren't even really in, know anything about the music, but it just kind Right. Of yeah, because I didn't out. really have a cultural connection to it, really no, didn't hit, hear it other than hearing it on the radio or TV once in a while. I think what really got me was that what seemed like such complexity, and sure enough, there is complexity in it. And I hadn't heard an instrument play that sounded like that. You know, you hear Violin, you hear a piano, of course, that's plenty of complex music there, but you're hearing melodic lines, and, harmon and later I learned to understand 
damn chords and all that kind of thing too. But with the banjo, it's just a completely different animal to hear. You know, there's this series of notes, and at the time I didn't pick up on that, that these were built out of patterns. They just seemed like almost arbitrary notes flying in all over the place. And out of that tapestry of notes, you hear a melody of some kind that emerges. In Foggy Mountain Breakout, it was just the sheer energy, uh, the rhythmic aspect of it, the excitement of it. That's what caught my ear right away. Later on, I learned to appreciate the fact that there is melody going on within all of that, uh, all of the notes that seem to be surrounding it. So to go from... I thought that's the most amazing thing. And there was, and this is not to denigrate it at all, to me it did have kind of a, a mechanical sound, but I don't mean that in a, in a, in a negative way like that. It's just all mechanical and soulless. I like the fact that it had this um, sort of uh, an evenness, the way you would hear a machine working, you know, sort of a yeah. clockwork kind of a thing going on. There was like the, you could sense a rhythm within it and a pulse and, all that and then within that you have such strong musicality and it just that blend fascinated me still does 45 years yeah. later i still am amazed at what the sound of a forward and a backward roll can do and when you add melody notes yeah, i love it yeah yes i understand i mean i still just when i'm when my banjo's set up right and i'm just playing it around the house i'm just playing on a forward roll on like a you know on a g chord and it's yeah. and my timing's feeling good that day. You can just really get hypnotized get by that in, that, that. in that, you know, that what you said, you know, it's mechanical but not soulless. Like it has this um yeah, you just it's this weird, weird thing that works with the with the with the Scrug style banjo. It does, and I think it's something that does appeal to a certain uh, I, I don't know, maybe a certain personality or what whatever. I find it it's interesting when you look at some of the people who are drawn to the banjo, like Bill Keith. You know, he has a very analytical mind. Mm -hmm. And I've run into some other players like that. They also maybe they're very good with machines or taking you know, engines apart or just or working on watches or something. They just like that kind of mind that's drawn to to mechanics and the way gears and cogs and things work together. I mean, before I ever got into music, I was always fascinated as a little kid to watch how things were made or the way, you know, machinery in a factory would work with all kinds of conveyor belts and cogs and, and parts all working. And you could even hear kind of a clicking rhythm going on within that sort of a, a pulse happening, but all this complexity around it. So it seemed like here was a musical format that actually had those elements in it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You might be onto something. I mean, I know Greg Deering's, you know, very into machines himself. He's very yeah. good at that. And so it might well, that's been yeah, brought up that the textile mills of North Carolina. Uh, uh -huh. Earl Scruggs you know, had worked in one and other banjo players had too. And maybe this it was a documentary years ago about yeah. that and sort of touched on that aspect a little bit. That, you know, possibly one thing besides the music, they're raised with the music, yeah, hearing yeah. The, the songs and all of that. But something about that style of three-finger picking that was popular in the Carolinas coming from, to some extent, you're influenced by your environment. 
if you're in a working or whatever environment where you're hearing that kind of thing all the time, that might be something that's sort of like deep down in your in your DNA, <laughs> in your in mm-hmm. your bones. You know, something whether you know it or not, it's sort of subconsciously or subconsciously you're you're absorbing that. You also mentioned, you know, how there is melody coming out of these roles. And um, I think with students, I know sometimes it's hard to, to kind of, that's a, to get them to get that melody outside of the roles where you can, where it sound, doesn't just sound like banjo, but it sounds like a song. Um, how do, is there any tips for, for our viewers to try to get melody, pull melody out of when you're playing a, a basic um, Scruggs style role? Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, when I was learning, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on that. I'm talking about mid-70s. It, it seemed like the, uh, the way to learn, you got good books, Scruggs book, among others. Uh, of course, that's an essential book for this style. Um, but you would learn patterns, and then you'd learn how to apply those patterns to a tune, Cripple Creek in that case, and then you'd build on that. And then it seemed to be a matter of excuse me, listening to breaks, listening to specific tunes, how to apply those patterns, and then learn sort of how to play something note for note. That gets you going for sure, but it's not really teaching you how to extract the melody necessarily. Um, I kind of arrived at that later, and I think a lot of people arrived at it about the same time. If you just strip it down to the bare bones, take a tune like uh, Fireball Mail I was just playing a little while ago, and just... Instead of playing the roles, just do the most basic melody of the tune. And we don't have to go through the whole tune, but if it, you just add a, just a simple roll around that, or even just doing it in... That's not even rolls, but now I'm getting sort of maybe some quarter notes going on, but you, but possibly adding a roll. That might be an even better way to do it, just to have the whole notes of the basic melody and then hearing a forward roll that's filling the space rather than just empty space. That's mm-hmm. that, that sort of like one thing to do is just take whatever tune you're learning, a vocal tune of some kind, and extract it and break it, break it down to the most basic melody and then apply just basic open string rolls at first. If you're already playing bluegrass technique, then you can start adding hammers and pulls and slides and whatever you want to do just to embellish that. I think that's that kind of thing. That would yeah, be yeah. basically the step. And a lot of people are teaching that more and more these days. I, hear, I see more and more methods that are coming out that really emphasize this because it seemed to be overlooked in some of the earlier banjo books. And that's, again, not to denigrate the early stuff because that was that came along when there was really nothing else around and it was valuable right. and incredible information to have. But this idea of getting... Getting a melody, if somebody has been playing for a number of years and they go to a jam session, they hear a tune that they're not familiar with, it's like, how do you play that? Well, you could go home and learn the break off of an album, or you could try to really work your ear to get the basic melody 
add a few open rolls, and then add a little bit of bluegrass technique around it. And I mean, you could go on, you know, you could do a two hour yeah, lesson just on yeah, that. Definitely, definitely, definitely. <laughs> but it is so important. It's so great for your ear to do that because I couldn't do that. I can tell you the first five years of playing, I couldn't do that. I wasn't even thinking like that. If, if someone said down the road, if I hadn't learned a tune like down the road, I went and learned it out of the Scruggs book, which is great. There right. it is. There's the tab or maybe a tab from somewhere else. Now I know how to play down the road. But it didn't occur to me to analyze it and go, well, why is that? What, what's making that work and why is that? So it's like, well, just do it. <laughs> Learn the tune. Yeah. Now you know how to play down the road without really thinking about how, what it took to arrive at that. So, you know, by breaking it down, going back the other way and sort of extracting the melody out, um, you learn to sort of analyze and see what makes that work. Yeah. Really critical, especially in that style. Yeah. And it opens up your ears by, by starting to, you know, listen for melody and, and learn melody. Yeah. So you, you play um, you play some pretty progressive styles. You do um, of bluegrass banjo, but you still balance the line of very traditional. You're very good at, at you know pushing it, but also not making it weird or anything like staying <laughs> in the pocket. Um, um, but how did you did you have teachers that 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 brought you into these more um, modern styles, or were you just listening to players? Um, certain players that were playing in this more sort of progressive bluegrass style, um, and if so, who were you listening to? Like, who are your, what who kind of pushed you into this into this place where you are now? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I would, and yeah, you know, certainly not pushed. It's like as things came along, it so happens. Like, I got into this in '73. So when I first got a banjo, took lessons, uh, and I was really after Foggy Mountain Breakdown and tunes like that eventually but really after foggy mountain breakdown and, and the foggy mountain banjo album that's what i was that's the sound i was not aware of melodic banjo at all i didn't have any records that had that i had flat and scruggs records wherever i could find them there weren't that many in print at that time in the mid-70s actually a lot of the classics weren't in print anyway that's what i was really working on train 45 and hearing bill emerson playing theme time and things like that just Loved it. And the Jimmy Martin, Good and Country album, all of that. Loved it. Um, so it was just by, by happenstance, starting to tune into radio stations in the Baltimore, Washington area that were playing uh, more some of the more progressive stuff at the time, seldom seen in particular. And I remember hearing Ryder, hearing, I didn't know what, what it was, didn't know who the seldom seen was. Suddenly here's this tune and here's this banjo playing that was very different. Ben Eldridge doing the incredible stuff on Ryder. I didn't know anything about the style, but I knew it was very, very different. So that caught my ear, but I didn't know how to approach it at all. But the first thing that really caught me was getting a Dueling Banjos album by Arthur Smith. And it turns out that Bobby Thompson was playing some five-string banjo, and Arthur Smith was playing tenor banjo. But I got it because it's Dueling Banjos and had a picture of a banjo on the front and looked at the back and it's Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Okay, good. This is stuff that same, seems familiar to me. Well, I wasn't as drawn to the tenor banjo, but on the, the Dueling Banjos cut on this album, Bobby Thompson takes this break on Dueling Banjos.
Right. Good Lord. And then the thing they called me right away, and I couldn't figure any of that out. I didn't even know where it was, but as soon as he played that very straight first break, and then this... I was just as riveted as the first time I heard. I mean, as soon as I heard that, I didn't know where it was. I had no idea on the neck. I hadn't played anything like that. But it just, it nailed me also. You know, just mm-hmm. like Foggy Mountain, I just, I heard that. And that got me into this. I didn't even know his melodic style. Just so happens to started getting banjo newsletter around that time, and Held Nietzsche was writing articles and mentioning melodic style banjo. And sometimes he would write a little passage of something in there, and it, and it would be not that particular break, but sometimes a lick based off of something like that. So I sought out a little more Bobby Thompson and started hearing the. You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, that was great. That's what I wanted to do also. Yeah. So while I'm learning the Scruggs thing, I was hearing that, and then hearing more and more players. Ben Aldridge was seldom seen. Alan Mundy, Country Gazette. I hadn't heard Courtney Johnson yet with uh, Newgrass Revival. Didn't have that album, but not long after I started hearing this stuff, I finally got that album, heard Lonesome Fiddle Blues, and started hearing minor, D minor, descending, you know, ascending and descending licks and scales, and that's how I got really heavily into the melodic side of it. So it's all mostly self-taught? To some extent, yeah. I wasn't uh, with it. Well, there was another instructor. The guy who got me started on banjo, he went another way and was eventually not as involved in music. But he put me onto his instructor, another good, real good banjo player in the Baltimore area, Arnold Sell. And I started taking lessons from him, and he started showing me some of this. I, I was figuring out some of it from Banjo Newsletter, but he was—he had already was already able to play some of those kind of lines, and I was able to see on the neck where these notes were. So he—I was getting some lessons from him, but uh, but not a lot. It was again certain things happened. That melodic banjo book came up just at the right time. I remember what, seeing yeah. an article about Trishka, and they talked about how this book was going to be coming out in the next month or two, and it was like like waiting on Christmas, you know, it's like I couldn't wait for this book to come out, a melodic banjo, because I was really trying to get it, but it was in bits and pieces in banjo newsletter, but here was going to be a book that to me was like the Scrubs book of melodic banjo was, of melodic style, was this melodic banjo book. So I worked a lot of that, that book. And today, do you, um, do you improvise in the melodic style, or do you work out most of your melodic breaks beforehand? Uh, I'd say probably a good bit of it is worked out. I, within that, I do interchange bits and pieces. And in fact, I think of the melodic style, even though it's a different technique, but my approach to it is very much like Scrub style. In if you take Scrug style, and you have you can you can break it down to these licks and phrases, and then you can mix and match them. That's all just interchangeable Scrug style licks that could be worked into solos and all that. So you can do the same thing with a melodic phrase. So. Thank you. 
say take little bits and pieces of, say in that case, I'm just working sort of some blue scale, but I, they are separate phrases, but by doing them for years and years, I've learned to be able to sort of mix and match within that. So it can give kind of this, uh, there's some improv going on. I can, I can change direction in those kind of things and move around in them pretty free, freely. Now I couldn't do that at first. I had to learn them first, learn the scales, learn where they lay out. But I, I would say that's how I improvise. I improvise in those sort of chunks of one, two, or three measure lines. Is that making sense? And did you, yeah, totally. And did you learn, like, you know, licks, melodic licks that worked over certain chord, uh, certain harmony, or yeah. So you kind of had a, a uh, you know, your your kind of, you know, your your ten like G licks and your ten D licks. You, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yes, did you just did. memorize those or did you write them down or something? I remember oh, I writing write these too. down and making like a notebook of them, this stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. I did the same thing. You know, if I came across something, I was like, I'm never going to remember that. I would scribble it out. I mean, sometimes if I was elsewhere, just write five lines and write the numbers. Um, but yeah, I had notebooks of things like that, like something that maybe I stumbled on or had just learned. I was like, oh gosh, I love this phrase. I really... Yeah, you know, I don't want to forget it. Yes, I would. At the time, I wasn't even taping anything yet, you know. Uh, so I, I would write that down. And yeah, I was thinking of it very much like, okay, this is something that works over G. Here's something that's a D lick or a C lick. So it was very, you know, I hadn't really gotten the hang of, of music in the way of understanding that these things can flow in different ways and they're not necessarily locked into just G, C, and D licks. But I tended to think of it that way early on, for sure. And how did you make that leap over where, where where you weren't just playing like this puzzle piece that went on top of the G chord, and then and then you stopped playing and played this other puzzle piece that went on top of this D chord or something? How did you make that? Do you remember how or your recommendations on how to get to that transition place? Because I remember being in that spot, too, where I had these licks, and I put them on this certain type of harmony but the musicality wasn't quite there because they were kind of like all right here's my, this thing and here's this thing yeah. but uh had to connect it all together where it's a sounds like you know a musical idea great question that's a so important because yeah i had no feel for that whatsoever what was helpful for me was listening to really great fiddle players we had a couple of excellent fiddle players in the baltimore area back in that day of late 70s warren blair john glick to incredible fiddle players still around and wonderful players. Anyway, I got the chance to pl start to play with guys like this, and I really couldn't comprehend it. I, you know, I was learning fiddle tunes, and I would learn my one break to a specific fiddle tune. But the more I was playing with really fine fiddlers like that, I realized, oh my gosh, they're not thinking, at least to me. And I didn't ask them this. I was just, just from playing with them. I realized that's not what they're doing at all. I didn't sense that they're playing G licks and C licks and D licks. It was just so much beautiful flow from one thing to another. And a lot of it made no sense to me right away. I was like, wait a minute, that's a, that's a G thing. Why is that working? It didn't even occur to me to ask that right away, but I'd be like, why is that working so well over C? Or how come that thing is working beautifully over D? I thought you had to go to a D lick. I mean, that's how basic my understanding was. And being around that influence 
really rubbed off because I love fiddle tunes. I really tried to play the fiddle too. I really worked on it, but couldn't really get that going as much. But I love fiddle music, love fiddle tunes, and besides fiddle tunes, I love fiddle phrasing. I love fiddle breaks, chubby wise, everything from the early chubby wise fiddle breaks with Monroe, Can't You Hear Me Call, and that kind of thing, to everything that's going on today, to all the stuff that Vassar has done. And you know, when I listen to great fiddlers, I'm really tuning into the way they flow. And nowadays, really, that's very common, to some extent, very common. You hear that more. I mean, they're great mandolin players. You listen to other instruments and the way they flow with their ideas. And it's not just the fiddle, but the fiddle was a big part of what I had my ear tuned into. But then I started really listening and seeing mandolin players are doing that, guitar players are doing that too. And now everybody's doing it. And starting to listen to some other forms of music. And I'm not a jazz player, at, at, really, at all, but I would hear it and listen to certain things. I always loved Oscar Peterson, even though I'm not a pianist at all, but I do love his music. And just hearing that kind of flow and phrasing and realizing that, okay, there's more to it than just breaking it down to specific licks in certain, certain keys or over certain chords. And I think that's that's really, I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's really no, no. how I started hearing that. Did you did you start transcribing other instruments, or did you just sure. start to just listen deeper on what other instruments were doing? Listening deeper, or I would hear a phrase and think, "Gosh, that's really a great phrase. Why is that working? What what is it about that, or the way these fiddle would play when they're improvising, not just playing a fiddle tune, but they're playing a break on some given tune?" And I'm thinking, "Gosh, why? How are they able to make?" that flow and it's just it just seemed like it was an endless flow of ideas and obviously on a violin it's a fiddle it's melodic ideas it's just like constant and it just seems like they're not even thinking in terms of licks i mean you do hear a lick or you'll hear a phrase sure that'll jump out once in a while but you're hearing a altogether different flow of music and i would try to copy that sure you know i would sometimes if somebody like that a great fiddler would take a really interesting break on something, I would work it out, or I'd work out as much of it as I possibly could and see where, it's, where is it going and why is it going there and why is that connecting in a certain way. And it really did help break the habit of what I had in turn sort of learned by learning just specific patterns over certain chords. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's just the way I learned the banjo was the scrub style and learning these sort of chunks of music and putting them together different ways. But it, it took me a while to sort of break from that, but I have to say I still kind of think of it that way. Yeah. It still shows up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you hear enough of me, you'll hear you'll hear some familiar <laughs> phrases. I have some pet licks and phrases. It's not unusual, you know. No, I every I think everybody, you know, everybody does to a certain extent. Yeah. Um it's it's part of it's part of the vocabulary you have. Yeah. Do you want to play another tune for us? Sure. Um, well, I'll play you one of mine. Um, this is a tune called M80, and uh, recorded this with uh, Frank Sullivan, Dirty Kitchen, a number of years back. On the edge. Out.
Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a fantastic oh, tune. Incredible oh, thank playing. I appreciate that. It's a, it, it, hearing the chords under it would be helpful. I know that can sound, that can sound a little scattered. Hearing it sort of, you know, on its own like that, but um, well, I'm glad you like it. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. And, and, and those you are the kind you, of licks and phrases I do favor a lot too. The, yeah, they're hip. They're good. Um, you mentioned you played it with Frank Sullivan, and you know you're currently playing with Frank Sullivan in Dirty Kitchen. How? Yeah. How? When did you start in that band, and and uh, what is what are some of your favorite things about playing in that band? Uh, started actually tech, I think officially we started in March of 2009 so we've been going at it for a while and uh, what I love is Frank writes great material and he's a fantastic musician no, no question about that and, and it's always been a strong band uh, in terms of rhythm uh, the singing is strong and the material is, is interesting and a lot of original material and uh, I'd say the choice of material, the way it's presented, um, it, it's I really I, I enjoy it for me because it gives me a, a plenty of variety to play around with, and it's challenging for me to, you know, to create breaks on somebody else's original tunes that don't always necessarily follow the traditional patterns. Sometimes they do, but sometimes there are other things. There are, there's a wide range of dynamics in our music, and uh, all of that really appeals to me. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic band, obviously, and you know, y'all have been nominated for a Grammy Grammy Award. Um, and uh, I was listening a, a fair amount to that last album that came out in 2019. Um, right. Are are y'all working on anything right now? Recording it? Yeah, we just uh, recorded a, a new project uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and so uh, vocals are being added to it now, and it. It's, Again, some of Frank's originals are on there, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be a really nice project for sure. Probably out sometime. I think we're like late spring. I think we're shooting for maybe April or May. Awesome, awesome. Keep an eye out for it. Yeah, keep an ear out for it. Yeah, keep an ear out for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you're besides being one of the top, uh, you know, bluegrass banjoists on the scene today. You're also a fantastic banjo setup technician um how did you learn some because there's many players that don't know too much about actually setting up their instrument how did you get into that and um and and then yeah start there uh well fortunately right out of high school i got to work in a music store that just opened up in baltimore called baltimore bluegrass so here we had a bluegrass music store uh, right in town. I started working there just learning, you know, just how to work in a store. But I knew, I knew nothing about setting up myself, nothing at all. I hadn't changed. I think I'd barely changed the strings on my own instrument, much less anything else. Uh, so it was learning how to set up shop inventory. Uh, we were learning too, so there weren't really, you know, any books or seminars, you know, much information like that. The owner of the store, Steve Cunningham, he was learning a good bit about repair. He was he was really seeking it out. He was starting to do some some pretty deep repair work on fiddles and mostly guitars, and really became an excellent repairman. But I wasn't really involved in that right away. It was mostly just setting up shop inventory, and he would show me a few things about how to you know tighten a banjo head or you know get the action down or something like that on basic um, 
you know, beginner level, entry level instruments. So that was really a lot of it right away. And I really was learning on my own instrument at the same time. I just finally got around to changing the head and it took me all afternoon, you know, because I wanted to be really careful. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get it back together again and all that, that kind of thing, just going very slowly. So it was a little bit at a time reading articles in places like Banjo Newsletter. There really weren't any books yet. That sort of came out years later. There were a few books that came along on setup. So it was a lot of trial and error. But I think learning how to set up that inventory and make minor adjustments on better quality instruments, and as I got better with that and more confident with it, I started being able to, to do a little more detailed work on on mid-level to higher-level instruments, but it was a lot of lot of experimenting on, on my own. I wasn't deep into building or anything like that. I wasn't making necks or any, any of that kind of thing, but it was really just how to adjust the instrument, how to get the sound that I was hearing on albums, but I didn't feel like I was getting it myself, and I was, of course, still trying to play, too, so, you know, how much is it me that it's not getting the sound, or how much is it the instrument, or the bridge, or the head, and all that? So that it's the stuff that we all go through of trying to figure out what is it that's making it right. Now you have a lot of information available on the Hangout and various other sources where people who've been doing it for a long time are offering a lot of really great advice on how to how to achieve this. But a lot of it's going to come from your ear. I mean, you can learn how to make the adjustments and learn the nuts and bolts of things to look for, but so much of it comes down to what are you hearing and what are you looking for? Right, because then there's so many different different takes on, you know, how the tailpiece should be set on, on the tension hoop or, or, you know, or what's the best, you know, what's the best head tension or just various, right. various things like that. But it really does matter... Um, um, what you what you're looking for? Um, yeah. So what are some of the? Yeah. I just want to finish up with that point, not to interrupt you, but I just yeah. hang on ahead. to the question you're thinking of right there because that is so vital, and it took me a long time to to do this. And I think for some people more, there were less amount of time of really getting that sense of tone in your mind, and it can change over the years. What you may have loved 20 or 30 years ago might be a little different now. Your taste may have changed and all that, but really getting a solid sense of what you're really looking for is so important because otherwise you're kind of flying blind, flying deaf to some extent. You're just kind of chasing things or you're taking advice from wherever, and it may be perfectly good advice, but unless you can really hear it and hear those differences, that takes a certain amount of time of getting a discerning ear for what, what you're really looking for. So... You know, in terms of doing setup, you can get things kind of a neutral setup that just basically works, but really dialing in setup for a specific player or for yourself takes a, a little bit more time and certainly have to have your ear really sort of developed to a certain level to get results that you're looking for. That's all. I just wanted to yeah. because it's so and when that you aspect gets overlooked. Right, because there's not like there's not one specific thing. It's not like this is what you do to make it sound the best. Um, yeah. So when when somebody comes in, it's like an artist comes in, and they and you you kind of have a you do have a conversation about what they're going for when you try to set up their instrument. Yeah. Tonal wise. If it's, if it's an, an artist, someone who's really playing, they know what they're looking for. 
Yeah, it's they're not usually looking for how do I how do I get this sound out of my instrument. They they already know from playing and all that. They're usually in a situation where they just need a good fret job. You know, maybe it's just you know frets are buzzing, or, or there could be something going on with the instrument. Maybe uh, the tone is changing a little bit too drastically from day to day or week to week, and you don't want to know what's going on. And that that gets just more into technical issues about the construction of the instrument or is it set up properly. If it's somebody who's not necessarily artist level, but a good player, but they're still dealing with those issues of, you know, gosh, why is why is it not sound so good here? Or how come when I play an A, it's not very good? Or it, or it's you know, it could be most basic things, like it's just the bridge is in the wrong place, so tuning is not good. Um, or if they just seem to be, you know, they just want it to sound better, but then, frankly, it can come down to their technique, too. Um, they haven't really arrived yet at the space where they can play consistently enough so that they know there's something going on with the instrument and not just something going on with their hands. That's really a tricky deal right there. Um, just backpedaling on that just for a second, I will have that conversation with somebody. If it's somebody I don't know, don't know what they're looking for, first thing I ask, who are you listening to? Mm -hmm. Who are your favorite players? And then I'll just get just sort of basic, do a basic kind of a look at it like, well, a neutral setup of a Scruggs Crow sound somewhere in here and any number of players that, that are going to get that kind of sound. If you're looking for a darker, fuller, Bela, Noam kind of a sound, that's another matter altogether. It would be a specific setup. If you're looking for something with a bit, bit more crack and high end and think of it as like a Ralph Stanley arch top sound, that would be sort of the extreme up here. So just sort of try to get it some kind of a gauge on what they favor in that realm. And then we can even dial it into specific players, like, or even with a player and say, okay, J.D. Crow, all right, great. Yeah, I love J.D. too. Um, which album? Because they're all different. They're all great, but they're all different. And that's been discussed about early. Krugs too. The Mercury session sounds very different from Carnegie Hall. Sounds really different from a lot of the mid '50s Columbia recordings. Almost any one of those for different reasons: calfskin head versus plastic, different mics, different studio, different everything, different necks on his Granada. So, you know, within them, you can get someone who says, "Yeah, I really like." You know, it, it could be just anything that Earl Scruggs did. Okay, well, we can get you pretty close to a setup on that. Or it's, yeah, I really like this album. Or this cut on this album. They can get really specific. So yeah, we'll have that conversation. I think it's important to do that and try to hear it. And sometimes I've even asked someone to come in, bring a recording, bring along something you think is just killer, like the ultimate in tone. Like, here it is. This cut right here. That sound, that's what I'm looking for. That's that helps awesome. a lot. That's awesome, yeah, yeah definitely. I've had that those conversations when recording, when trying to capture, you know, I like this record, you know, can we try to, I've never had it in a, in a you know, in a setup situation. Um, sure. Yeah. I, I think it's vital to do that. And you can really, for anybody out there that maybe they don't have access to somebody who sets up an instrument or a banjo specifically, and you're going to make an appointment with, some, with somebody who does that, think about those things ahead of time. It could really help if you really dialed that in rather than just have a blanket, well, I just want it to sound fuller. 
or right. I just, you know, I like a deep sound or a rich sound. I mean, that's all, you know, can be one man's ears, you know, can be hard to sort of dial that in. But if you say, I like this recording and even get right down to what is it about that recording or, or that cut. And it could even be right down to one lick <laughs> in a song where you just have a, a banjo lick that really sticks out. And you go, man, that sound right there is, that's like exactly the kind of tone I'm looking for. They, they right. really, you'll, you can probably get some better results from your setup tech if you can really give them that, uh, that information ahead of time. Yeah. And have them... Well, we have some... That, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, say, go ahead, go ahead. I was yeah. just going to say, and, ha and play for that person, too. Because, you know, that's also one thing I would do, not just put the banjo up on the bench and just start working on it. It's like, right. you know, someone says, I just don't like the sound of my banjo, let me hear you play. Right, and that's not to get player brings up. criticize their playing or anything like that, but if they're saying, uh, geez, my banjo sounds really bright, but it turns out it could be more of a technical issue. With, you know the right hand so you know that gets into a kind of a <laughs> possibly a sensitive area definitely but, uh, definitely, anyway. definitely definitely i'm sorry i cut you off i get so excited about no, this stuff that, I that's, that's, forever. <laughs> <laughs> no i love it i love it um but we have a number of questions coming in on the chat yeah. about some setup things i'd like to get to these um sure. there's one from larry it says thanks so much let's see doing have these sessions I'd like to ask your opinion concerning truss rod adjustment and tone we know the neck relief can be set differently for each banjo and player's desires, but I've seemed to notice that on my main banjo, one you played for an hour or so at Jack Hatfield's house about three years ago, that occasionally the tone is just a tiny bit less than I want. I'm not a parts changer and don't make quick adjustments, but I've found that consistently a very slight backing off and resetting the tension on the rod brings back what I'm looking for in tone. I never adjusted enough to change neck relief, but just uh, kind of retention the rod. This may only come up two to three times per year. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, boy, that's a loaded question too, because can, we could talk for three hours on that. Yeah, there's definitely something to the tension on the neck. And I'm glad he brought up the point of, I'm not trying to change the relief, because I would say, no matter what, you want that relief to be accurate, um, and, and because it's so important that it's that it's proper. If there's too much relief, you run into intonation problems. Too little relief, you start running into possible buzzing issues and action problems. So that action and relief do need to be within a certain realm of of correctness. But sure enough, the tension on the rod does affect things because if you tighten that. A little bit you stiffen the neck a little bit uh, and it can change and I can't always say exactly which way it works because sometimes you put a little more tension on and it seems to give you like more vibe in the neck like you can really feel the neck sort of move more and if you back off the the trot a little bit seems like it cut that goes away and now it feels a little bit soft or not as responsive and sometimes it works the other way like if the if the truss rod is a little tight it can feel like, well, the neck feels okay. You loosen it just a, a hair, and suddenly now it seems more responsive. So I've, I've encountered that going both ways. But I have to say that, yes, it's, it does affect the tone. I think it affects feel almost more than tone, and I do make a distinction on that. 
that it's not always going to be a, a sonic difference that you're going to hear right away and go, wow, I, I hear that. That's much deeper now that I've backed off the truss rod or whatever, but, but more of a feel in the neck and a responsiveness of the overall instrument going from either stiff to responsive. It's just yeah, I've, I've run across that. Definitely. I, I, I ran across that one time setting up my archtop guitar. I brought to a, a very good luthier and he just tweaked the truss rod and it opened up the whole guitar. Um, yeah. It was like the tension of the, thinking it like a banjo, it's like the tension of the top now was changed. And because mm. you can't change the tension of, you know, the top of guitar. So it seemed to like just open it up. And then I've noticed that on banjo by just touching it, you can sometimes find this little thing that it, not always, but sometimes it, it, it you know, it, res, it responds more. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, tricky because uh, it could be from the day one, you know, now we're talking about a piece of wood that, you know, varies from not only whether you have the mahogany or maple or anything like that, but you could have 10 mahogany necks practically cut from the same tree and they're still maybe going to respond a little bit differently. Maybe uh, I don't do building of the instrument, so I don't know about how to install a truss rod properly, but depending on how a truss rod was installed. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it has something to do with how deep the channel is or whatever, but there's something that maybe could affect that and make that truss rod act differently with that piece of wood. It's the unpredictable nature of wood and, of course, construction that can more or less make some kind of a difference. So there is something to that. Is that some of the fun of, of setting up instruments too, is that there is no exact thing where you just set it to, because each instrument is different hmm. uh, subtly, you know, each piece of wood is slightly different. So you do have to use your ear. You can't just say, okay, this is this model and I'm going to turn the wrench to the point A or, you know. Right. Uh, that's an interesting question. I think it's sort of a, uh, a, you know, a blessing and a curse all at once. Because, <laughs> yeah, 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 it does make things interesting and challenging. On the other hand, it can make it extremely aggravating because then you feel like, gosh, you don't really have any constants to work with. It's like, you know, the, all the rules are, are, are changing, <laughs> you know, right under your, your hands. You know, I like this. It took me, me a long time to arrive at an overall neutral setup that worked that, that worked well for me and that's you know the bridge and head tension tailpiece tension and all that kind of thing I, mean, I knew nothing about that first 10 or 15 years of playing i mean i would mess around with it but i didn't really understand totally what what those things were doing it wasn't until i got around other people that knew this stuff that, that, that there was more discussion about head tension as far as i know nobody hardly talked about that in the 70s and 80s it was just tighten it up till it Breaks and back it off. That was the old line. <laughs> but, but, you know, they didn't have all these different bridges and all this. Nobody was talking about how much tailpiece gap to have or any of that. Um, so I think what makes the banjo interesting for me is there are certain things that you can do that, that can really, if you apply certain principles right away or certain um, certain steps right away to an instrument that's not set up properly, there's a certain order to things to get it into a good neutral setup, and then it's a matter of dialing that in. And yeah, I would say I do enjoy the challenge of it. I also enjoy the fact that there are certain things that are certain rules that do seem to work universally. 
Mm-hmm. So you see, a, need a certain amount of head tension to get a certain response, and you certain certainly the quality of the components and how they're put together. There are those rules have changed somewhat over the years. It's not as much about everything being tight and squeezed together. It's more of a loose setup for some people now. Um, but to answer that question, yeah, it's it's still a challenge. I would think working on only wood instruments like violins, mandolins, guitars would be really so much more challenging because you don't have the mechanical nature of just quickly making an adjustment with a tailpiece or, you know, throw another bridge on. Well, you can do that with a mandolin and a fiddle, but it's not as easy to make some of those changes. And it could be something about, you know, deeper into the material of the wood or whatever that really changes that. Yeah. I don't know if I expressed that too well, but I think you know what I mean. With the banjo, you can make, within 15 or 20 minutes, really drastic improvements Mm -hmm. on a bad setup. Yeah, I could do that in almost no time. If the components are decent, within a reasonable amount of time, without even changing very much, you can make a handful of adjustments that are known adjustments that will bring it from here to here right away. We have another question from the chat, which is from Joseph Brosk. He says, um, when my banjo is tuned, allegedly, I fret the string for the next whole set. I fret the string for the next whole setup. Should that next note ring true or should it be a bit sharp? Example, third string is in tune, but when I fret it at the second fret for an A, the A is quite sharp. Is this normal, or do I have a bridge placement issue? It could be bridge placement. Uh, so that's the first thing you want to check. Well, we all check of the 12th fret uh, harmonic and fretted note. Also, the 19th fret is a good place to check for that, and sometimes comes in a little uh, more accurately. Learned that from uh, Tom Neckville. He pointed that out. I think he had that in one of his books. We were just, just discussing that. But sometimes you can even dial in bridge placement a little more accurately at the 19th fret, but the 12th fret is a good place to start. If that's working, but you're still getting a sharp A going on there, that could be that the nut action is, is too high. So mm-hmm. the nut action right here off of the first fret is too high, then you're possibly stretching that string down to the fingerboard. You're actually pushing the, and stretching the string down too far. Uh, a lot of this information is out there. One really quick little rule of thumb or finger in this case, you can press the third string at the third fret. In this case, you're working with your third string. And then look at the first fret, the gap between... I'm holding them, trying to get this camera right there. You're not going to see this, this um, gap, but if I press the third string, third fret, I want to see a little bit of motion off the top of the first fret with that third string. I mean, a little bit of movement. And what's a little bit of movement? Well, I can't really show you on here, but there are people who are measuring this thing out. I mean, maybe five thousandths or something like that. Um, But some kind of movement there, but not too much. You know, if you have a good deal of movement where you're really stretching it at the first fret, you're going to have some serious intonation problems going on right here in the first position. Mm-hmm. Also, how hard you're fretting, and that's a whole other issue, and again, you can talk about that for hours, but 
whether you're capoing or fretting, are you making sure that when you're fretting, you're right at the fret, not on top of the fret, but not back here either. You don't want to be back behind the fret because you want to let the fret really do the work. If I'm back behind the fret, here's the same, just to give you an idea, we're going off of this a little bit, we could, you know, we've talked about bridge placement, possibly nut action too high. Basically, what the technique I've tried to work on for years is to develop a fairly light touch with the left hand to the point where I'm not really touching the fingerboard. I can feel it a little bit, but I'm not really making much contact there. Here I am fretting at the second fret. A nice, clear, clean note. Here's the same tension. I'm not pressing any harder. I'm hardly bending that string. I'm just moving my finger up. I'm not pressing harder to get a clean note out of that. That's just the string on the fret with hardly any deflection of that string bent behind the fret. That gets, again, into capoing issues as well. I see that a lot. I used to do that a lot. I used to really gouge out a fingerboard, or I'd be holding a D chord or something, and my fingers would be splayed out like this, and, you know, maybe my little finger wasn't all the way up to the fourth fret. It might have been back here. So what do you do? It's buzzing. You press harder, and now it goes sharp. Yeah. So you have to really watch your left-hand technique and pressure. Quick review. Bridge placement, nut action, and then left-hand pressure. And now another issue, possibly a high or low fret or you know something going on with the frets. Great. Great tips. Um, we have another question. We have a question from Lynn. She says, any thoughts on having a radius versus a flat neck? Deering has recently come out with a radius neck models. Any advantage to changing a standard Deering, for example, Sierra neck to a radius neck? Yeah, um, I think the radius neck is really comfortable for certain playing styles. I tried one myself. I remember when Bela got that, that radius Montleone neck back in the 70s. and Well, not 70s, rather 80s, I think early 80s, and started seeing him playing with this new grass and doing that. And, of course, you know, I love his playing. <laughs> always have and still do and always will. So I thought, geez, that might be the way to go, you know, if I want to get that sound and, you know, go after that. Um, there must be something to the radius neck. Tried one for a while. Certainly nothing wrong with it, but I soon discovered that for my playing style, it was not necessary. And the reason I just felt that way for me was noticing the way he played over the years and the techniques he's developed require much more barring on the neck. If you're holding position and working around it, you know, something like that, I think that's, what song was that? <laughs> Metric lips? No, it's not. I can't remember which tune, which tune it was. But anyway, so a Bela-esque type of uh, lick there. Um, that's really comfortable to have a radius. That feels really good. If you're barring a lot or holding, you know, these kind of shaped chords, or you're barring a couple of partial strings, you know, or, or that kind of thing, definitely a lot more comfortable on a radius board. But if you're playing standard Scruggs style or melodic style, the the kind of thing I'm doing, I found that there was no advantage to having the radius board. Uh, if you're doing single string, if you're a heavy single 
single string player, I think the radius board would be helpful because it's the same thing comes into play because the single string is not simply just notes like that. A lot of times there are little bar positions that are done with the middle finger or ring finger. And again, that same kind of uh, comfort in the left hand when you're holding a, a bar position, working the other fingers, or doing very quick little two or three note bars, that's where the radius really comes into play. But to play... To my, to me, for my ear, or not for my ear, but for my playing, um, I don't find that that would be any advantage on a radius board if you're predominantly playing that style or a melodic. That wouldn't be any easier with a radius board. So it really depends on what you're doing. If you're doing a lot more jazzy chords, bar chords, and single string, radius would be helpful. Nice. Sorry, another long-winded answer. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, we could go on and on. I'd love to keep chatting with you. We do need to start to wrap it up. I'm gonna. We have one more quick question from from the chat. Um, Tracy Griffith. She she says I have a um, I have a bear claw tailpiece that I um, that I bought the banjo from only uses ball and strings. I was wondering if I could use loop and strings. I think you can. I haven't seen one of those in a while, but I know what you mean. The, 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 the bear claw has, like, for each string, kind of like, almost like two prongs that come together and you slide that ball in between them. You can open up the loop and get it around those two prongs. I don't really have anything to demonstrate that with. I'm going to, I'll sort of fake it with these scissors here. It's almost like right at, right at each string, you have these two pieces here, and then the ball end goes right in, right in the middle. But if you open up that loop, you can get the loop to go around that. This is obviously uh, much bigger, but you know that that tapers it. On the, on the bear claws that I've seen like that, that can work, and that won't hurt the loop. When you do open up the loop, you can use an awl or a nail or a nail punch or something like that, and just sort of get more of a circle going in that loop instead of a little oval. So that it is possible to use uh, loop strings on a on a bear claw. Okay, thanks. Um, this has been fantastic. I could go keep going for hours and hours, both about about playing technique and about banjo setup with you. We'd love to have you on again and and, and dive deeper into either or of these. But um, but uh, would you mind? You know, thanks for being here. Um, Gonna ask you to play one more tune. Um, oh, before we go, uh, everybody. Next week we have John Bullard on the show, uh, classical five-string banjo player John Bullard. So definitely tune in next Thursday to see him. And um, but um, Mike, thanks again. This was a lot of fun. Um, do you mind playing us out? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, let me ask you: Do you, I have like a kind of a Christmas medley I could do, like those kind of things, or do you want another breakdown kind of tune? What would you? Uh, what, what What would be your preference on something like that? A Christmas medley. It's a little early in the season for me for it's Christmas tunes. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. But um, uh, if you want us, if you want to kick off the holiday season, I guess you could. But. Uh, do a little bit of an abbreviated uh, little holiday thing and also i want to send out you know a, a heartfelt salute to our troops and all the veterans today absolutely
on Veterans Day is yeah, so important. Definitely. And thank you all, everybody, one and all, for your service. Thank you.